I need to do a little bit of teaching about this text, but to get there, I have to tell you a few stories, and you're probably becoming accustomed to me telling stories to get to some teaching. When I first went to seminary, I chose intentionally a seminary that was going to challenge me academically. So you can choose, uh, so for those of you that don't know, to become a, an ordained elder, a pastor in the United Methodist Church, there are educational requirements that need to be met to be able to do that. And um, there are different ways, different paths you can get there, but I chose to go to a divinity school and study theology at that divinity school. And I chose a school that was going to intentionally challenge me academically. I didn't really want to go to a school that was going to be a faith development kind of place, and there are those seminaries, and they're great, but I felt like, for me, I needed a place that was going to challenge me academically and challenge my faith in some ways. And the reason I wanted to do that is because the world... The, the, I'm not going to say the world. That's not a fair thing because this, that's not true of the whole world. The culture that we live in is progressively becoming less and less Christian. And people, we're becoming more and more skeptical of traditional faith and organized religion. And that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. But I know that's happening and so I wanted to go to a place that would challenge me some so that I could think differently about my own faith. And so the word that is used in, in, a, in academic settings around faith and your faith being challenged that way is called deconstruction. And it's interesting to be talking about deconstruction in this, in this physical location today. <laughs> deconstruction is basically you take your... Can I, I'm going to put my Bible here. Um, deconstruction is basically you, you take your faith apart. You take one part of it away and you look at it and you kind of turn it over and you set it down and then you have this other part and you check it out and you analyze it and you put it down and then you have this other part and you look at it and you set it down. Kind of like taking an engine apart if you're going to rebuild the engine. And then, um, uh, the school that I went to, it was left up to us to put it back together. And what ends up happening when we are, our faith is deconstructed, how, how many of you have ever put together a Lego uh, kit? You know, like where you go and you actually buy the box and you open it and you open the packages and there are the directions. You put piece A with piece B and piece C with piece D. And before long, you have a Millennium Falcon, Right? Something like that. And it's amazing until that one twerp comes along and breaks your thing. And then you realize you've lost the directions. And how are you ever going to get it put back in the same way? And the truth of it is, you won't. You're going to have a blue piece where a yellow piece should have been. And you're going to have a green piece where a red piece should have been. But there's something really incredible about the reconstruction of Legos that way. Because it's creative. It's a more creative Lego construction right? And that's what happens to our faith sometimes. We will go through experiences where our faith is deconstructed for whatever reason. It could be the death of a relative. It could be a new job. It could be losing a job. It could be being forced to move to a new place. But something happens and our faith is shaken and it just doesn't come back together the same way. But it's through those experiences that when our faith does start to come back together, it's going to look different than it was, but it's going to be richer and it's going to be stronger. Amen? Amen. Anybody ever experienced that? When, I'm going to tell another story. 
then I'll tie these two stories together, <laughs> I hope. So when I was um, 17, 16 years old, the fall of 1993, I was walking between third period and fourth period, and uh, in Carlsbad High School, I was walking, the cafeteria was to my right, and the, and the choir classrooms were to my right, and we were outdoors, you kind of walk around outdoors at that high school, and I saw this girl, and she was the prettiest girl that I had seen at the school, and I saw her, and I just kind of kept going, and then... The next day, I thought, oh, maybe I'll see her between third and fourth period again. That, that sounds stalkery, I know. I wasn't like being, maybe I was kind of being a stalker. And, and so I see her again, and I'm like, okay, so this is it. Like every day between third and fourth period, I'm going to see this pretty girl. Don't act like you didn't do that. <laughs> that you didn't know where people were going to be and when they were going to be there. At least you knew where your buddies were going to be, right? Like I knew where I was going to see Tim and Paul and Raymond and and... Anyway, so I just kept seeing this girl. And um, I broke up with my girlfriend that I had at the time, and I was at a basketball game watching basketball, and I see a girl sitting next to the girl. But I knew one of them's name because she was my friend, and, and so I, I got her attention, and I said, Hey, who's that girl next to you? And she goes, Oh, well, that's, that's Michelle Edwards. you want me to introduce you to her? And I said, well, Yeah, of course. And so she introduced her to me. Now the girl between third and fourth period had a name right? It was Michelle Edwards. That's really all I knew of her. She was the pretty girl between third and fourth period. Now she was Michelle Edwards. And as Michelle Edwards and I began to talk, she told me that she was there watching her brother play basketball. And his name was Jimmy Edwards. And I knew Jimmy. We used to have tape ball fights in drafting in eighth and ninth grade. And so I was like, man, I didn't know Jimmy had a hot little sister. And so as... Time went on, I asked her on a date, and now she became Michelle Edwards, this girl that I'd gone on a few dates with. And then one night, nervously, I asked her to be my girlfriend, and now she was my girlfriend. Her name had changed from hot girl between third and fourth period to Michelle Edwards, who happens to be my girlfriend. And we dated for a long time, and then she became Michelle Edwards, my fiancé. Her name changed again. And then she, her name changed again, and she became Michelle Edwards, or she became Michelle Whitaker, my wife. And then her name changed again, and she became Mom, Michelle Edward, or Michelle Whitaker, mother of my children. And it just continues, right? The more you get to know somebody, their name can sort of change. So Peter has this experience with Jesus. Peter's name was not Peter, it was Simon. And they have an experience together. You know, names mean something. We, we all probably could look in some baby book and find out what our name means. And that may be what your name means, but that's not who you are. In some cultures, you kind of, you're given a name after it's discovered who you are. And the name describes who you are. So I don't know what Simon means, but Peter means the rock. What's happening in this text is that Simon, Peter, and Jesus are having a conversation essentially about who are you? What is your name? When I was about six years old, something like that, maybe five I saw a handbell choir for the first time. And 
my life was changed because a miracle was literally happening before my eyes. Those people were banging a bell on something that I couldn't see. Right? Like, y'all are looking... Who's seen a handbell choir, by the way? (laughs) Doesn't it look like they're hitting something? They're going like, bang, bang, and it's making noise. No? Nobody's with me? I was a dumb kid, apparently. I thought that they were hitting something, and I couldn't see it, and God was working a miracle right before my eyes, and these bells were singing songs that they, I couldn't, I didn't know that there was a clacker inside there, people. I thought God was doing a miracle. My faith was so blind and so childlike that I literally thought anything can happen in church. It can, yeah, it can. Go get a handbell, let's find out. <laughs> and so then, but then, like, life happened, right? And I learned, no, that's not really what's going on with those bells. There's like a little thing inside there, and, and they, they have to make it hit the thing. And, and so my, fa- my faith changed a little. And then life happens, and my faith changes a little bit more. And, and, and then I start to have this understanding of Jesus, like, Jesus is the miracle worker, but also Jesus is who saves me from going to hell. I just had this like basic understanding. There's heaven and there's hell. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven, so I'm going to believe in Jesus. Really simple. Then I understood Jesus as not just who helps me get to heaven, but who helps me live my life. Jesus is the master of living, the creator of life. Nobody lived it better. And if we read the stories of Jesus, we get an idea of this is how you live. This is the best way to live. But then I started to understand Jesus was kind of a rebel rouser. He stirred the pot and made people mad. Jesus was with the poor always. I heard a story one time that Shane Claiborne was preaching about poverty and helping people overcome poverty and and a lady came up to him afterwards she was upset and disturbed by a sermon and she said look there's always going to be poor people and she's and he said yeah but are you always with the poor because jesus was i started to understand that jesus is with people who don't look like me maybe even more than jesus is with me and so over time, this understanding that I had of Jesus died and was resurrected as something more. And then that idea and understanding of Jesus maybe died or maybe it was added to and the resurrection became even stronger. And then maybe, maybe some of that died a little and came back as something even stronger again. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is all of the things I just said and even more. And what happens is we have to be in community with one another to discover these new Jesuses. Peter, although Jesus says, hey, that understanding, that this thing you know about me, that I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of the living God, that didn't come from flesh and blood, that came from my Father. That's how you understand that. But the reality is, God works through communities of people always. So the question was, Who am I? Well, some people say that you're Elijah. And some people say that somehow you're John the Baptist. And some people say you're one of the other prophets. All we know, Jesus, is that people say you're one of the prophets. And and we're 
We're trying to figure it out. And he goes, but who do you say that I am? Peter is bold and courageous and stands up and says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I think that there should be parentheses that says, and this makes all the difference. Who is Jesus for you? Why does that matter? It's hard to work all of that out without a community. I have a really, really good friend who, when I first met her and her husband, their faith was like this vibrant, rich, deep faith. There was the kind of challenging faith that that challenges us, challenged me to want to go deeper and to understand more and to practice my faith more. Have you ever known somebody like that? And then tragedy struck in her life and her father was killed in an accident in his backyard where a tree was being trimmed and a limb fell and hit him and killed him instantly. And her faith was deconstructed. She didn't understand Jesus anymore. But what she understood was she needed to be with people and be part of a community that would allow her to walk through that and to see if Jesus would be resurrected in her life. And so she stayed connected. And there were times that I felt like she was stepping back into this faith that she had and then she would get scared and step out again. There were times that I felt like she was reaching for Jesus and there were times I felt like she was pushing Jesus away and there were times I felt like she didn't want to even know who Jesus was or pretend like he didn't even exist. But in the midst of it, there was a community around her and her family loving her. And today, if she were standing here, she would say, Jesus was resurrected in my life and he is this. And she would be able to tell you who Jesus is. As I've been telling you for weeks behind us now, I am going to be asking you and inviting you to be part of small groups in this church that will walk with you and help you know and help you question who is Jesus and why does it matter. For me, Jesus is the person who challenges me to be a better person. I read the scriptures and I see what Jesus does and and I see that Jesus says, you'll do these things and even more. And it challenges me. I see Jesus touching lepers and I think, "I I don't spend enough time out. I see Jesus hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and I think, I don't, I don't know enough people. I've got to get out and know more people. But also, I see Jesus talking to goofballs like Peter and saying, Peter, put your sword down. And I realize I may be more like Peter than, than I would like to admit. And I see Jesus saying to Thomas, Hey man, touch my hands. It's okay that you questioned. You're welcome. And I want to be more like that. In your life, Jesus is going to reshape himself for you. He's going to resurrect in new ways in your life and change who you are because of that. But you need people with you.
Peter was not standing alone. He had 11 other guys with him. Who are your 11? Who are the people who challenge you to keep asking the question and who won't let you quit when you want to quit? Who are the people who continually ask you, what is it that you believe? Who is Jesus? This week, let's ask those questions of ourselves. Let's rediscover again who Jesus is and why it matters that He is the Son of the living God, our Messiah. Amen.